Well, we are in the book of Acts, the book of, I'm sorry, book of Luke, (laughs) the book of Luke. I looked down and I saw Act 1 and it threw me off. We are in Luke, but the title of our sermon is, you're expecting Act 1, but it is the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. So last week we started this journey in the gospel of Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. So Luke is volume one, and the book of Acts is volume two. Uh, The Gospel of Luke takes us through the end of, through the resurrection event, and then Acts chapter one picks up with the commissioning of the disciples and the ascension of Christ, and that one takes us all the way through the last missionary journey of Paul, where he ends off in Rome, the gospel going to the ends of the world. Last week, we learned, in short, why the gospel was written. It was so that we could come to understand that Jesus is is the Messiah. And Luke is a historian. He takes great pains to give us the details. He's gone on this huge research project because he wants his friend, Theophilus, to know exactly what's happened. And so he tells us exactly what he's doing. Just a reminder of the books of the New Testament, the genres, if you will. I have a few charts for us today. I like charts. I don't know if you guys like charts. Hopefully you like charts. It works sort of like this. We have the Gospels, which is the narrative story. It's just telling the story of who Jesus was and what he did. This is where Jesus went. These were the sermons he preached. This is what he did. The person work of Jesus. The book of Acts then picks up the story and it moves forward and talks about the establishment of the church of Jesus. So this community that forms up believers and followers of Jesus, and now they begin to organize themselves into the church. And there's... Uh, all kinds of instructions and things we can learn in the book of Acts. The epistles then, the letters are, a lot of them are from Paul, but not all from Paul. They're instructions to these communities that have formed up who are followers of Jesus and how they are to operate. And then the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with the return of Jesus, the prediction of his coming. Jesus is coming soon. And so that's really how the New Testament is shaped up. So we find ourselves here, and we're going to jump back into Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 25 this morning. Part of the reason I chose to start this particular gospel at this particular time is because Luke starts out with uh, telling us about these infancy narratives, as they're called, the birth stories, birth of John the Baptist, and then also Jesus himself. And this is part of the reason we picked that in the Christmas season. And the birth narratives will take us well beyond Christmas, so we're going to be talking about Christmas way past everybody else talking about Christmas. So some of you that just can't get enough of Christmas, you're going to love it because we'll be talking about this for a little while, because Luke gives extended attention to the birth of Jesus. It's also really symmetrical, this way, the way that this is written. I told you I had some charts for you uh, here today. So there's a comparison going on in Luke's account of the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Jesus. And so here's how it works. You have an angelic vision, which is Gabriel in both cases, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who would have their son John, and then Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So there's a vision, there's a prediction that you're going to have a baby. The baby is named. This would normally be something that the father would have responsibility for, naming the child, but in both of these cases, they're told what the child's name would be. There's a heavy emphasis of the role of the Spirit of God in their lives, and this is playing off of some Old Testament prophecies. There's a song of reflection in each one. Zechariah offers a song of reflection, and then Mary offers a song of reflection, which we'll get into that um, as well, called the Magnificat. 
There's the miracle of conception. We'll see in our story this morning that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not supposed to be able to have a child because it's noted that Elizabeth was barren. She had not been able to have children, and she's very old, which recalls a lot of Old Testament stories, and we'll see. I've got a chart for that, too. You'll see it in just a minute. There's a lot of Old Testament stories that are converging here that they're being reminded of and playing off of. And of course, Joseph and Mary should not have been having a child at that point because Mary was a virgin. This should not be able to be. And that's Mary's question. We'll get into her story next week. There's doubt and questions about this story and what's going on. And we see with Zechariah that he questions God's plan and questions if this is actually going to happen. That doesn't work out all that well for him, as we'll see in our story. And then Mary also asks the question that I think many of us would ask, how can this be? Um, How could this possibly be? There's Old Testament background, and this is really chock full of Old Testament background. John the Baptist is mentioned as being Elijah. Elijah was predicted, predicted to come again. And so he's, there's this undertone going on, and then there's numerous illustrations of this with the life of Jesus. I've just picked one there with Isaiah 9, 6. There's growth before, before this public ministry of both John and then also with Jesus. So you can see what Luke is doing. He's very careful in the way that he has assembled this. There's a lot of symmetry. They're bouncing off of each other. And he wants you to see that these two stories go right together. These two stories go together. So I titled the sermon today, You're Expecting. And I've done that intentionally because typically we say what? We're expecting. Now, it would strike you a little bit odd if somebody came up to you and said, hey, guess what? You're expecting. That would be quite a shock to the system. And that's what I want you to feel because that's exactly what happened here in this story. You're expecting. So they're going to have babies, and these babies are really, it's really amazing what's going on. So these child, these children that come, let's talk about it the expectant mothers and the children to be. We're gonna see God's servants, God's message, God's credibility, and then God's grace. So God's servants first. Let me read our story for us, and then we'll go back and take it apart. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers 
to the children and the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And an angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when they came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Amazing. Let's see God's servants. A few things that I think will be helpful as we dive into this. One, it says that these things happened in the days of Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, this isn't a story that starts out like a once upon a time. This doesn't read like a fairy tale. And I mentioned last week that one of the burdens of Luke is to nestle this whole story in careful historical context so that other readers who were reading around this same time and even generations from then could cross-reference what Luke is saying against what other historical records had said. And so, it's not once upon a time, it's in the time of Herod. Well, people knew who Herod was. They had records about when he ruled, which was around 37 BC, counting down to 4 AD, so right around the birth time of Christ. So that's what he's doing. This man is a priest, says in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest, and his name was Zechariah. There was a priest, and he was of a specific division of Abijah. There were a lot of priests, and it's a little bit open to discussion. People debate these types of things. Exactly how many priests were around and how many were functioning during this time. And I don't know the exact answer to that, but one one resource I was looking at said there could have been as many as 18,000 priests around during this time. And then they're divided into divisions, 24 divisions within that. So many, many priests in one division. And the way it worked is your division, his division, Abijah, they would have two weeks out of the year where they were on duty at the temple. Well, not everybody, there's only one temple, there's only one altar of incense, as we'll see. So they would select one by casting of the lots, and one priest would go in and have this opportunity to light the altar of incense. And so it just so happened that it fell to Zechariah that day. And guess who happened to be in there that day? Zechariah. It's an amazing, amazing story. So this is our priest, Abijah, and he's of this division. Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, I'm sorry, uh, 24 tells us a little bit about these divisions that were probably reconstituted um, in the time, in the early first century. He's married to a girl who understands the system very well, a daughter of Aaron, which means her father would have been a priest as well. So they're all about some priestly things in that house. The Elizabeth comes from a priestly family and she married a priest, sort of like 
pastor's kids getting married. Just, they, they know the system very well. They're intimately acquainted with the whole thing. Daughter of, daughters of Aaron. So far, so good. They seem like this idyllic couple. We're told that they're older, they're advanced in years, but then we're also told that they had no child. They had no child, but they were righteous and blameless. They were faithful to the Lord, but there's a problem, and this would be really an issue for many in the first century. They had no child. It was considered to be judgment from God if you were childless, and many thought that way, and there's Old Testament passages that would lead you to say things like this. Deuteronomy 7.14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So I think what we're doing is we're stepping into the world of the first century, and it's a world of brokenness, and it's a world of hurt. But Luke is careful to distinguish and say it's not because of their individual sin that they don't have a child. No, they're blameless, and they're walking upright before the Lord, walking in righteousness before the Lord. So it's not that. It's just they live in a broken and fallen world. So these things never really fully took root in Israel and for Israel. And so this is a deliverance from that. Barrenness and brokenness in the Old Testament. I want to show you a few places where we see this. You might be thinking of some stories, and I just wanted to lay them all out so you can see the different lines that intersect with this particular story. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we're really looking for like that one-to-one correspondence. Like, well, this person stands for this, and this person stands for this, and this person is, stands for this. And oftentimes the biblical writers aren't writing like that. They're writing in a way that reminds you of different nuances and tones from a lot of different stories. And so in some ways, we see that Elizabeth is going to end up being like all of these ladies that are mentioned here in some way. So let's look at a few of these. I have the references noted there for you. I'll read, I'll read uh, some of these. You don't have to look them up. Uh, Genesis 11.30, this is Sarah, or eventually changed to Sarai, or Sarai to Sarah. And it says in Genesis 11.30, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Now this is so significant because right after this, the Abrahamic promise is given that you're gonna be the father of multitudes. There's gonna be a nation that's born from you. Well, they're old and Sarai, his wife, is barren. So this is gonna be a problem. But of course, we know how the story goes. God eventually does give them a child. But this consumes a lot of space in Genesis. If you read from Genesis all the way through the end, there's a lot of space given to Abraham and how this promise eventually gets developed and comes about with the birth of Isaac. So this is the child that eventually comes from there. So we have a barren woman, a promise of a child, and a son. Remind you of another story here? See, correspondence. Well, interestingly, the next generation, the same thing happens. Genesis 25, verse 21. His wife, Rebecca, is barren, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. All right, so who is this again? Isaac prayed for his wife who was barren. Now, you have to think that Isaac at this point is thinking, huh, my wife is barren. 
I know a story about this. <laughs> he had been told. <laughs> There's no doubt in the world that he had been told. And so he's thinking about that. He prays to the Lord for his wife, and she has a child. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So Isaac and Rebekah end up the twins, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, one of Jacob's wives, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Rachel was barren. Rachel said, Genesis 30 and verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. That's an incredible statement. Give me children or I shall die. Later on, we read Genesis 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. So we see these stories, a barren woman, and God gives them a son. This would end up being Joseph. A couple other stories, and these probably may not be quite as familiar. The story of Samson, and this one reminds us a lot, actually, of the story we're going to look at this morning. Judges, chapter 13, verse 2 and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So there's a prediction of a child that's gonna come. That would end up being Samson. And then the last one, Hannah. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 verse six. And her rival, this is the other wife of her husband, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. She made fun of her because she was not able to bear a child. And Elkanah, this is her husband, I found this really interesting. And if you read it with the right lens, I think it's actually almost comical. And Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? She's like, no, I still want a baby. <laughs> and I think, and, and so the next, the next scene, she's, she's actually back at the temple, like begging for a child again. So apparently this didn't really take root. So it's a cautionary tale for husbands. Don't overestimate your self-importance there in the home, in the marriage. Am I not more than 10 sons? She's like, uh-uh, you're really not. Interesting though. All right, so all of these lines, God has a history of taking people that shouldn't be having kids, and he's going to give them kids. He, he has a history of this. This is how God operates and what he does. So in the first century, Luke understands all this. He understands historical context. He's writing to a group of people that knew their Old Testament. They knew about the patriarchs. They could probably draw these genealogical trees much, much better than most of us in this room could. And he's tapping into this narrative of children coming from unexpected places. I think this is an amazing thing that Luke is doing and showing us how this fits into God's plan. Let me just say a word or two here, just recognizing, as one commentator put it, the elephant in the text for us here this morning. And that is this idea of barrenness. Uh, there are people that desperately want to have children and are not able to for whatever reason. And sometimes when you hear a couple say, we're expecting, it's instead of rejoicing, you want to weep. And it can hit like 
a dagger to your own heart and soul. Those words can fall really, really heavy. You feel like everybody's rejoicing, but we're weeping. They're rejoicing with those who rejoice, but they're not weeping with those who weep. And they feel this longing and sense of brokenness. And I think we need to recognize that. We need to understand that. And we need to bring the Lord's comfort to those situations. Please know the Lord sees you. Your story may not end exactly like this one ends, but the Lord sees, he knows Your kids don't define you. They are a blessing from the Lord, but Christ and your relationship with him is ultimately what defines you. It is interesting as well, just as a footnote to that, after this, after the birth of Christ, there's really no other story like this in the Bible. This is is it. It all leads to the birth of this one, Jesus, and that becomes what everything is defined around in the New Testament. So this situation that these children are gonna be born into, it's an inbreaking of God's kingdom. There's a new work that's being done. It's amazing. So this is the situation, God's servants. Let's look at what is going on here in verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. God now delivers his message, God's message, and he delivers it through this priest, Zechariah. I mentioned a minute ago the divisions of the priests. There were 24 of them, 1 Chronicles 24. And these priests, this was a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You, You might get selected once in your entire career, your entire life, to go in and light the altar of incense. If the gospel stories aren't true, they come across completely ridiculous. How, really? How does this all happen? How does it line up? I think when the gospel writers were writing, and then Bible in general, but the gospels in particular here, the one thing you really can't be towards the gospel writings is indifferent. You can read them and you can be angry because you think this is a big hoax. You can read them and you can love them because you are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But you really can't read them and be indifferent. That's that's an entirely wrong response. You're not thinking carefully about what's going on here. If you read the gospel accounts and you think, "Eh, yeah, whatever, what's for dinner? The the gospel accounts are so profound and they're taking pains to show you how God has broken into his world and he's at work. So let's talk about how this would work. This priest, Zechariah, he selected And he's going to go in and he's going to light the altar of incense. Now I have a map here for you. This is really a floor plan of the temple in the first century. And the fundamentals of what's going on in the temple don't change. But of course, from the tabernacle to Solomon's temple to Zerubbabel's temple to Herod's temple, there's been some additions and subtractions along the way. This is the largest the temple complex has ever been. But fundamentally what's going on inside here is the same. So, this was all added with Herod's temple, the court of the women, and the court of the Gentiles, 
But this remains fundamentally the same, um, what's going on inside of the temple from all the way back to the days of the tabernacle. So the priests were congregating up in this area, and there would be a great altar here with a fire burning. They would take the fire, and then they would go, one priest and two attendants would go into the holy place, and there was another altar here, the altar of incense. And so it is Zechariah's day to go in and make sacrifice or burn the altar on the altar of incense that particular day. It wasn't something that was supposed to last too long. They would do this twice a day, and he would take the fire. He would walk in with two attendants. They would, probably, they would drop back and leave the priests alone in the holy place, not the most holy place, but in the holy place, and they would go in, and they would light the, light the fire of incense. Incense was a view, a symbol of prayers going up to God, Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So this was very much drilled into Israel in the first century. Well, he goes in and he finds that somebody else is in there. Now, there weren't supposed to be other folks in there. And so he walks in and he's met by an angel. He's met by an angel. There's only two named angels in the Old Testament, only two named angels. You probably know what they are. Gabriel, who's in our story here, and Michael. Yep, Michael, the archangel. They're, they're the only two. And so Gabriel is there. We don't, he doesn't announce his name. At least Luke doesn't tell us he announced his name right then. We do learn it later on from verse 19 when he asks the question, who are you? How do I know this is gonna come true? So he meets, he meets him. So verse 10 the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So there's a gathering on these outer courts and they would pray corporately as the priest went in. And they had probably gone through sort of their ritual, their prayers. They'd gone through the typical things that they would say and do. And it just isn't quite ending. And it just keeps going and going and going. And so the people start to get nervous and look around. Think, what, has something gone wrong? There in the temple, what is going on? Well, it turns out something has happened in the temple, but it's not bad. It's actually very good. He's met an angel. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. You would be too. I'm amazed by what we've done to the idea of angels in our culture and context. We picture angels, when I say angel, you probably picture like a marshmallow with wings that's kind of sweet and fluffy. And that's not at all what angels are in the Bible. Angels are bad dudes. Whenever people see angels, they hit their face. They're in the form of a man and they are absolutely scary. Abraham falls on his face before the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18 and 19. Balaam falls on his face before the angel, Numbers 22. Daniel, it says, is fearful of the angel. Same angel. Elkanah, Samson's dad, fell and worshiped the angel when we, they have this birth announcement. So this is the reaction to angels. It, it's not uh, as much as, you know, I appreciate the underlying, some of the underlying moral tones of It's a Wonderful Life. That's not exactly how it works, all right? Sorry to ruin anything for you here at Christmas, but bells, wings, like Clarence, it doesn't quite work that way in the Bible. What we do have is this angel who's 
absolutely intimidating. And so it puts Zechariah on his face. He is afraid. The first thing the angel tells him is don't be afraid. You know the first thing he tells Mary when he meets her? Don't be afraid. <laughs> Obviously, there was something about the guy that looked really scary because every time he meets somebody, he's like, hey, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. So maybe you're one of those just intimidating looking people. And whenever you meet somebody, you're like, I, I mean, you know harm. Uh, don't be afraid. This is, this is the angel. Angel has a message. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. God's message comes through him. He tells him his name, and he also tells him the gender. There's no gender reveal, massive party that he's not sending up balloons. He just says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. John, the name means Yahweh is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Let's see about this message. What is God's message that comes through Gabriel? A few things that we can pick up here about the life and ministry of John the Baptist. John is also often called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. The reason we do that is to distinguish him from the other John, the gospel writer John, another follower of Jesus, So his name is John, not his mama and daddy didn't name him John the Baptist. Gabriel didn't name him John the Baptist either. But we use that oftentimes in writings. You'll see John the Evangelist, the gospel writer, and John the Baptist, the one, the character here, the forerunner of Jesus, because he would end up being the one who goes out and he baptizes people. And so he takes on the name John the Baptist. Notice a few things. He's going to have a ministry that's going to be to many Many are going to hear. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So he's going to have a birth that many are going to rejoice at. And then verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You know, we all want to think that our kids are going to do something in life, right? That's every parent's hope that their kids are going to accomplish things. Parents always talk about their kids' accomplishments. If you don't believe that, open a social media account and you'll find that out real fast. And you sort of live vicariously in some senses through your kids and maybe some of you have stepped into a new stage of your grandkids and you are proud of them. You wanna see them accomplish things. And oftentimes parents are extremely proud. You're not gonna believe this. My kid is the smartest kid that's ever lived. They smiled at me today. (laughs) Like, wow, that's really awesome. (laughs) Happy for you. And we, we love that. But what is predicted here is something fundamentally different. This guy is going to have an influence like nobody else has ever had. Jesus even says of John later that of the men of, of those born of women, there's none like him. There's this, this guy has an incredible ministry. It's a ministry to many, but it's also implied in the many is there are going to be detractors, and he's going to receive opposition. And of course, we know that this is true. He ends up dying as a martyr for his confrontation of an unlawful marriage. So a ministry to many, it's a ministry of separation. Look at verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, 
and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So we're told that he's going to be a different type of character. He's not supposed to drink wine and strong drink. People, some have speculated that maybe he took a Nazarite vow, and this was actually the story in Judges 13 when Samson it's predicted Samson was going to be born. It says he won't cut his hair and he won't be one that drinks strong drink. And so there is overlap with that. But there is no mention of the cutting of hair with John. So it's unlikely that this is a Nazarite vow, but he is one that is to abstain. He's to be a teetotaler, not to take strong drink. And we know that he's one who ends up separating himself in many ways. He's sort of an eccentric character. He's out in the wilderness. He wears strange clothes. He eats strange food. He preaches a strong message. And we'll get to meet him a little bit more as we move our way through Luke. He's going to have a ministry of power. As I previously mentioned, it's going to be a ministry that is going to be powerful. Verse 17, and he will go before him. In the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a household name. Everybody knew about Elijah. And Elijah never died, and it's predicted in the Old Testament that he would come back. In 2 Kings 2.11, at least not in the typical sense, he's taken up to heaven. And so there was this uh, prophecy and this expectation of Elijah returning. And he's going to be in the spirit of Elijah, a prophet like Elijah. And then he's going to have a ministry of preparation. And this is to prepare the way of the Lord. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. But he is there to get everyone ready for the Messiah that is to come. So this is the, the meeting that we have that takes place. Let's look at God's credibility in verse 18. Zechariah has questions about all of this. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Says, um, so, Gabriel, we're just a little old for all this. I, I just don't, I don't know about all this. We're too old. And he asked for some validation. And this, again, reminds us of some Old Testament stories, doesn't it? Abraham and Sarah did the same exact thing. I want to read you. This, these are funny as well. When the angel comes and tells Abraham that you're going to have a baby with Sarah. And this is actually, this is multiple rounds of this. So it takes years and years and years. The angel visits them when they're old. And then again, when they're older, and then when they're really old, that's when the baby actually comes. So it's a series of years and visits. So the angel says, you're going to have a son and it's not Ishmael, not the child that you had through your own means. Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, some of y'all are thinking that would be a rough one. (laughs) Whoa, 90? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look, I already got this kid named Ishmael. Let's just use him. He could be the the one, the covenant promise. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So this is not an unusual reaction. We're too old for this. It can't work this way. The next chapter, Sarah. 
Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah hears the angel say, hey, this time next year, Sarah's gonna have a child. And she laughs, just like Abraham did. Verse 12, uh, Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Why, why, why are you laughing? What's so funny about this? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you did laugh. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like, I, did, I didn't laugh. I wasn't laughing. You were laughing. I'm not laughing. It's like, no, you were laughing. And the story ends. Like, this isn't funny, and there will be a child next year. Watch and see. He's running a credit check on God. Can God actually do this? Very similar to what happens with Zechariah here. Zechariah, though, he asks for a sign. How do I know that this is actually going to happen? How do I know? And Gabriel gives him a sign. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this news. Do you, do you understand what's going on here, Zechariah? I stand in the presence of God. This is Gabriel, the one who gave Daniel those visions. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. All right, so here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak. God is gonna close up your lips. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. This has taken way too long. Maybe something's happened. Maybe it's a Nadab and Abihu kind of story. The priest who offered unauthorized fire, they were struck dead by God. Should we send somebody in? What do we do? This is taking way too long. And that's how this story goes. The people were waiting, verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So he goes home, his time is over, and now we see that his wife Elizabeth, after these things, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She is pregnant now, and she is excited about it, and she hides herself for five months, which would be probably about the time it would take for a baby to start to show in normal pregnancy. Four or five months when she's visibly pregnant, that's when she decides to reemerge. Now, Zechariah still can't speak, and Elizabeth's gone and hidden herself, you have to wonder, put yourself in the shoes of the worshipers those day, what in the world just happened? <laughs> Zechariah has his vision, he can't speak, now they're just secluded, they're keeping to themselves in their house, what in the world? Well, they're gonna learn. They're gonna learn soon enough when John is actually born. The Lord has taken away my reproach. We can add the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth to this list. She was barren, and now the Lord is giving them a son. As we wrap it up today, just want to offer a few closing reflections. Um, one is this. 
Remember that God uses faithful and flawed people. This is encouraging for all of us. These are faithful people. They're faithful Israelites, faithful priests, a faithful priest's daughter and now wife, and they're just trying to live their life the best they can. But they're flawed as well. Zechariah doubts. They were flawed from the perspective of the culture and the world that day. They were flawed in that they didn't have children and they were older. God uses faithful and flawed people. Number two, remember, God has a plan and even years of delay won't stop it. This is encouraging for us this Christmas season. As you look around sometimes, you may think that things are spinning out of control. They're not. It's just a long delay, perhaps. It had been 400 years since God had spoken in Israel until this, until he showed up and spoke into the life of Zechariah. Even a long delay doesn't stop it. And then lastly, final reflection on Elizabeth. God gives good gifts to his children. It's an act of kindness that he does give her the desire of her heart eventually and gives her a son named John to take away the reproach among women and people. Next week, we'll see another pregnancy announcement. Mary's going to have a baby named Jesus. And whereas this one seemed to be coming a little bit too late in the game, the next one's coming a little bit too early. How can these things be? So we have an older lady who's having a baby, and next week we're going to have a younger lady who's having a baby. John was a man. He's not meant to be looked to. He's a man that's meant to be looked through. John 1.29, the next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, thank you for your word, and we're, we just look at the words that you've written for us and the depth of understanding that a gospel writer like Luke had of the Old Testament and the culture and the world in which these first century Jews inhabited. We see how the messianic predictions all correspond and they come to take root in the life of John and then later Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you do stay on track. You stay on your plan. And even though sometimes it may be hard for us to understand that, we want to be like these people who are waiting in the first century, who are faithful, following the commands of the Lord, and just waiting on you to fulfill your promises. So we pray, and we want to be those people with a sense of longing as well at the good things in Christ's name. Amen.